Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program broadcasting in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Risa Brooks, in a recent post in the International Politics and Society Journal, shared that early June saw one of the most remarkable periods in U.S. civil-military relations in decades. Donald Trump threatened to deploy regular active duty troops to confront American citizens protesting racial injustice in cities across the country. The civilian and military leadership of the U.S. Department of Defense balked at the possibility of sending troops to the streets. Several retired officers spoke out against the proposition and in some cases about Trump himself. For some watching, it looked like the American military had turned against the president. Ms. Brooks added that Trump has treated the military as a political ally, seeking to use its resources for partisan advantage and its members as political props. He has made explicitly partisan comments to military audiences and intervened in military justice to pardon or restore the rank of military personnel accused of war crimes and then invited the men to attend campaign events. His staff ordered that the naval vessel named after one of his political rivals, the USS John McCain, be blocked from view on the president's May 2019 visit to Yokosuku Naval Base in Japan. He signed a controversial Muslim ban on immigration in the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes with military personnel assembled in the audience. Observers of civil-military relations were alarmed by these and other incidents but by far the most disturbing has been Trump's early June threat to send military forces to confront protesters. Some early protests had involved property destruction and looting, and several governors activated the National Guard to assist in stabilizing the situation. The National Guard is a militia that normally is controlled by state governors, although it can be federalized, allowing the president to control it directly. We at Bring It On have reached out to a respected military officer to provide some frank and candid observations regarding the leadership of our nation's Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Armed Forces. Major General Craig Hugh Lake Timberlake from the United States Marine Corps joins us this evening. Major General Timberlake, now retired, enlisted in the Marine Corps in May of 1977. He was commissioned a second lieutenant in August 1984 and graduated from Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg in 1989. Several high profile assignments include as a rifle platoon commander, company commander, 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, commanding officer, weapons and field training battalion, MCRD, Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island, also commanding general, 3rd Marine Expeditionary Brigade, and commanding general, 3rd Marine Division. And after a very successful and distinguished career, Major General Timberlake retired from the Marine Corps in 2018 after 41 years of service and currently resides in New Braunfels, Texas with his wife and two daughters. 
It should be noted that his sister, Janet Timberlake, became the first Kentucky National Guard black female to be promoted to the rank of Sergeant Major back in December 2012. And he had the honor of presiding over the ceremony. And with that, uh, we are very proud to now introduce Major General Timberlake. Sir, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you very much to both of you. It's uh, my honor and pleasure uh, to be here this morning. So, um, <clears throat> go ahead, Clarence. No, I was just going to say, uh, it's truly, it's truly our uh, great delight to have you here, um, uh, to have two distinguished in individuals who served our country well. Uh, this is really uh, a high treat for bringing on, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. William? Thank you. So, General, we want to pretty much start from the top and uh, talk about the relationship between the president and the military. So when you consider um, that Generals Kelly, Mattis, and McMaster all left the administration over some type of differences with the president, Captain Brett Crozier, who was the commander of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier, was relieved of command. President Trump referred to top military leaders as dopes and babies. And as Clarence mentioned earlier, he intervened and overruled military leaders when service members were convicted of crimes. So considering all of that, how would you describe the relationship between the president and top military leaders? You know, from an outsider looking in, and I am that now because I have been retired for uh, several years, well, a couple of years now, I gotta tell you the relationship looks like it's a, a relationship that is built on mistrust versus a relationship built on trust. The things that the uh, president has done, um, all those things that you've just mentioned previously, uh, does not go to building a climate of inclusion and cohesion that the military needs to have. And I think the senior leadership understands that. Those individuals that you mentioned earlier, especially General Mattis, I've worked for him as you have, we've worked for him personally. Uh, he's a lot of things, but he's not overrated as the president called him. As a matter of fact, he's one of the finest officers I've ever known in over 41 years of service. And I, I trust his opinion. And, and the fact that he is no longer in the administration speaks volumes to me. Um, as I think about all that Donald Trump has, has done and, and his uh, use of the military really as a prop, but my, my heart goes out to that moment where those in command had to stand next to him as he stood at a church with a Bible to take a photo op. And then he brings in National Guard to clear the way as he sort of walks to this church. Uh, as you saw that unfolding on TV, what went through your mind? What went through my mind was this was just a horrible, horrible misuse of the United States military. I mean, the First Amendment to the Constitution gives people the right, freedom of speech, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom to seek redress from the government for, the, from the government for their grievances, and for him to deploy the police and the National Guard against people that were protesting peacefully was just horrible. You noticed that the next week, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, said, I should not have been there. Uh, you noticed that Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said, I should not have been there. They both realized the harm that was done 
by portraying the military in such an unfavorable light. And, you know, I, I've, um, over my time in service, I've spoke to thousands of service members and asked them why they joined the military. Never once have I heard, I joined the military to be deployed into Washington, D.C. against the American people. They always talk about defending America and going over there to defend America, but never once. And that's not why our young men and women are willing to sacrifice their lives. They wanted to do that in defense of this great nation, but not to be utilized against the people. You know, as a uh, two-star general, you, you, are, you belong to a small group uh, let me let me back up. As a two-star African American general, let me put it that way, you belong to a small group of elite, distinguished uh, individuals. Um, so when you consider the president's actions up to this point, how do you think that it affects race relations, if at all, in the military? Because keep in mind, we you know we have to acknowledge that there, there's probably a certain amount of people in the military who sympathize with white supremacists, KKK, so on and so forth. But with Trump uh, um, kind of uh, motivating those people and, and whatever their racist thoughts are, how do you think it affects the military overall? You know, I think when, when first off, um, the president always seems to aim to divide. And, 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 and that division that he attempts to create all the time will at some point affect the cohesion of units. Everyone that's ever been associated with the fighting force says the number one thing you have to have, especially on the battlefield, is cohesion. Individuals don't fight for America. In the fight, when the fight is on, in the heat of the moment, they fight for the individual to the left and to the right of them, those individuals that have their back. Yes, it's great to talk about mom, apple pie, and Chevrolet, but that's not why they fight. They fight for the individual next to them. So when he sows these seeds of discord with these tweets, um, with his actions, with using the military against the American people, eventually it's going to chip away at the cohesion. And you may not see it right now, but eventually you will see it. And when that happens, that is the quickest way to destroy the efforts of the United States military. You know, I'm, I'm appalled at how he has used service personnel as props. Even the most recent graduating class uh, was called back for their commencement address amidst all the COVID concerns, COVID-19 concerns. He, in my opinion, he used them as props and then used the speech as a political address. Um, you know, to tarnish the, the dignity and the distinction of the military force. What have you felt about that? And then what have your peers that you've talked to, what have they felt about that? Well, my peers, I think for the most part, they all fall out on the side of that this is something the president should not do. Again, you know, even if the president makes what the majority of Americans would consider a good decision, his delivery of that decision, the way he announces that decision, the way he publicizes and politicizes that decision, my peer group just thinks it's the wrong way to do business. Again, it looks like everything that he does plays to his base, 
and he sets up America to go to one side or the other. And the reason he does that, in my mind, that's his modus operandi for a reason, is because if the left and the right are fighting each other, they're not fighting him. And so he stands above the fray. And that's what he does when he goes to West Point. And instead of congratulating the graduates and making the day about them, he makes the day about him. You know, I, um, as a quick follow-up, uh, Ms. Brooks, Risa Brooks, and that excellent journal uh, post uh, mentioned that the military had balked at some of the requests that he had made. Now, now as commander-in-chief, they are duty-bound to follow the directive up to a point, because I've heard a lot of commentators say that uh, they have every right to reject following an order that is unlawful. Um, do you think we've almost breached that point on a number of occasions? And do you think that may be coming in the future? Well, I, th there's two parts of that. Yes, they have a right to reject an order that they feel is unlawful. But the follow-on piece of that is, if you're receiving an unlawful order and you cannot go along with that, then you have a responsibility to resign your commission. And especially we're talking about the commission officers and the senior leadership of the United States military. I mean, they swear an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Okay, and to bear true faith and allegiance is the same. They don't swear an oath to the president, but if they can't follow the orders of the commander in chief, then the, naturally the next thing for them to do is to resign. And some perhaps will resign. And I think you've kind of seen that a little bit when you saw the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Mattis said, I can no longer go along with how the president conducts himself. Therefore, I'm gonna step aside and let someone else do their best to help this president do whatever he feels he must do. Interesting point that you made uh, about officers not swearing an oath to the president. I think that is crucial because he conducts himself as if that is exactly what what the case is he thinks they swear an oath to him uh and clarence right. going back that's to, right going back to your point um about him using the military as props remember about three years ago and some change his first address to a military audience was to a coast guard audience and he went on during that speech and uh, uh he he used that gathering to whine and complain about how he's been the most mistreated president and so on and so forth. And I, I kind of thought, so he, he kind of set the stage for how he was going to uh, view the military and try and, and, and use the military uh, to further his own political interests. But um, General Timberlake, how do you feel about renaming the military, some of the military bases uh, concerning these Confederate generals? Sure. So as, as everyone in probably your listening audience knows, we, we have 10 bases, uh, United States Army bases that have been named after Confederate generals. And to me, it's very, very simple. We should rename those bases. And the reason that we should rename those bases is because nowhere else in our history with the exception of these individuals from the Civil War, do we give a place of honor, a place of respect by naming a base or a school after them? And what we have to do is look at the fact that these individuals took up arms. 
against the United States government. Therefore, they took up the arms against the American people writ large. And some of them, even after receiving training, the majority of them, especially these bases that, these, that are named after these generals, had received training at the expense of the United States because they had gone through yeah. West Point. Now, everyone likes to bring up Robert E. Lee, but I personally will give you another example. If you look at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, it's named after an individual by the name of Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg graduated from West Point, was commissioned in the United States Army, and by all accounts, served very competently for over 19 years. He was uh, noted in dispatch to have done well in the Second Seminole War and to, to have performed well in the Mexican-American War. But around about 1858, he decided, I'm going to retire as a lieutenant colonel, and I'm going to become a plantation owner. The next time you see said plantation owner is 1861, and now he's a general in the Confederate Army. Again, after swearing an oath to the Constitution and agreeing to protect his country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and now he is a Confederate general. So nowhere else in history do we honor some individuals that took up arms against the United States and the government by naming bases and schools after them, except this period of the Confederacy. We've done that. So we should, we should change those names. And, and it, there's a very simple solution out there. The Army has 2,404 individuals that have been awarded the Medal of Honor to this point. Surely, 10 of those rate to have a base named after them. It, it basically important. comes down to naming bases and schools after traitors. It most certainly does. It most certainly does. Traitors that violated an oath that, that, that doesn't have an expiration date on it. You know, um, sort of connected to this conversation are the monuments that have been erected uh, to Confederate generals. And, um, and a lot of them were built or erected back in the 20s or 30s. And some have said, or even later, and some have said that they were erected for the purpose of instilling fear in African-Americans. Uh, just like some say that even the monument, uh, I believe the, the um, uh, the Washington Monument, uh, and that when that was erected, the lights that sort of eerily blink red at night are supposed to cast uh, a, a specter of, of, of just, you know, looking over African-Americans in our country. The monuments were erected to instill fear in the hearts of African-Americans. Uh, all of this subtle psychological or psych, psych ops, as you might, might say, what do you think about this? Should all these monuments come down? Should they be hauled off to a museum? Uh, what should we do? Okay, I, you know, when, when people talk about removing monuments, um, the argument that you hear a lot is, well, which ones should we remove? Because if you start removing one, then you have to remove all. Right. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that's true at all. I think you can start and perhaps even stop with those individuals that took up arms against America. Because if you remove those mm -hmm. and place them, if you feel you need to place them somewhere, place them in a museum and tell the whole truth about them, then I think we make and we move America to a better place. I am not suggesting that there's got to be a wholesale remove 
a removal of every statue that someone finds objectable because you can't mm -hmm. do that. I think right. at a certain time you have to say, okay, uh, did this individual uh, contribute to something good, something positive about America? And I also think that you have to judge, you know, Dr. King says, at some point you have to judge people in the context of the time. You right. can't. And to me, that means you don't give them an excuse. You just realize that, hey, the founders wrote a beautiful document laying out the establishment of this country, but they were also slave owners. Mm -hmm. So you can't, so do you take down every statue to them? I don't think you have to. I think you can recognize their contributions. I think you can judge them in their time, in the context of their time, without giving them an excuse. But when it comes to the individuals that participated in the Civil War, the individuals that raised arms, took up arms against America, relegate those statutes to a museum. Right. Make sure we understand our history so that we don't repeat it, and then let's move on. I um, wanted to follow up on one thing. The word that escaped my mind was obelisk, and I was trying to define that structure in Washington. And that just threw me for a second. But also there's another obelisk dedicated to a Confederate general, I believe in Kentucky. Um, and I saw a wonderful documentary uh, by um, Tremaine Lee. And he went deep into the South and just explored all of these monuments that are erected. I believe you're right, we can't go around and replace all of these monuments, but we can sure get the history right and correct and let people make up their own minds. For those who just joined us, we are having a very uh, informative and I would say spirited conversation uh, with our uh, guest, Major General Craig Q. Lake Timberlake from the United States Marine Corps. Uh, and we've asked him just to come on and bring some frank, open and honest and candid and just you know, bring his observations of what's going on. And on that note, I wanna pivot a little bit and say that uh, are we still under a national emergency? Because as I recall, we sent troops down to the Mexican border to erect a wall. And it was announced one day that we're under now a national emergency. Now, are we still under this national emergency? Uh, why are our troops being sent down to the wall to do nothing but just guard a border? It makes no sense. Your, your comment, your observation on that. Sure. Uh and so national emergencies, to my understanding, uh, they continue uh, as long as the president continues to renew them. So if he sets a national emergency, it's usually for a specific period of time. And then at, 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 the, at the end of that time, then he needs to, to renew it. And if he doesn't, then the national emergency uh, kind of goes away if you, if, if you follow what I'm trying to say. So I, I think that technically, we probably are not under a national emergency. And to send troops to the border, again, to what end do we need to send troops to the border? And quite frankly, it's, it's, it's like a lot of things this president has done. He does it, it grabs the moment, it grabs the spotlight, and then it just goes away. And the important thing that I think we've got to do as Americans is we got to remind him when he does those things, no, it, it didn't just go away. It didn't just go away. And you, and you can't go around doing things like that, expecting that they will go away. And, and I would suggest to you that, um, it's, it's the same when he mobilizes military members to go to DC. They're no longer there. 
They weren't probably needed. They definitely weren't asked for by the leadership. Right. And now it's kind of gone away and, and, and we've moved on. He's moved on, even if the nation isn't allowed to move on. It, well, if, if General Colin Powell were to go over to the White House or at, request an audience with, with uh, President Trump, would he listen? I mean, no. one of the most well-respected, highly decorated in his party, a gentleman who um, had a stellar career, could he get him to listen to him? I don't think so. And, and, and it goes back to the first question and the first thing we kind of started out discussing. Look at all the individuals that have worked for this president and they come in with this great fanfare. These are the great guys. And I'll go back to General Mattis and I use him a lot because I'm more familiar with his story because he too is a United States Marine. But General Mattis was hired with great fanfare and the president says, I love him. His name is Mad Dog Mattis and I want him on my team. Less than 18 months later, he's leaving and he's considered, quote unquote, the most overrated general in history. So I, I don't know that there's anyone that will get the president to kind of understand when some of the things that he does, how he will be perceived. I think he already has an idea. He has a path that he wants to go and he's gonna go down that path, irrespective of who's trying to help him, trying to assist him. You know, it's important to note that the only general that he didn't either fire or resign under uh, questionable circumstances was the one that got indicted. And, and now I read yesterday that he's even talking about bringing him back on since they, the FBI, uh, not the FBI, the, the Attorney General dismissed all the charges against him. But I wanna go back to something uh, uh, regarding race relations in the military. During my time in Marine Corps, it was commonplace to see Confederate flags on license plates or, or just on flags themselves riding around the, uh, the base. So the Marine Corps took the lead in banning Confederate flags, which was a good thing. Um, one thing that I've always wondered is the people who would promote the Confederate symbol of flag, uh, you know, license plates, hats, bumper stickers, flags, whatever. One of the first things that they like to say, well, it's my heritage. And I, I never was able to get anybody to explain anything beyond that statement, it's my heritage. The truth of the matter is, I think the American flag captures that same heritage that they're talking about. If you're talking about a Southern heritage, the American flag captures that. And it's important to note that that Confederate flag that they are, are sporting on an American military base fought against the American flag under which they serve. Um, can, can you reflect on that, General? Sure, and, 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 I, and I believe that you, you're most certainly correct. The American flag already captures their heritage and it is more an inclusive heritage and not just a heritage from a Southern perspective. And that's what they're looking to capture. And when uh, that same refrain, I've heard it a million times, oh, it's my heritage, it's not hate, it's my heritage, it's not hate. Sure it is because it was utilized to torment and terrorize people. And it was used to torment and terrorize anybody that didn't look like the typical individual that was flying that flag. So I, I, I agree with you, it, it, it's, it, we already have the American flag and we don't need more than one flag. We need the American flag and we all should unite under that banner.
I we we've sort of been hitting hinting at this throughout this conversation, so I'll just put it on the table. With regards to uh, his questionable emotional stability, and we're talking about uh, our commander in chief, are there protocols in place to provide a check and balance, and in your opinion, on the president's use of the nuclear football? Sure, and 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 let, let me preface with I I am not an expert. This is one of those areas where there are very, very few experts, but I believe very firmly that there are protocols in place that would assist the president in any decision that he would need to make in regards to the use of nuclear weapons. And I know that uh, with Richard Nixon, right before he left office, um, after years after he left, word came out that there were protocols specifically put in place to safeguard against uh, any um, midnight decision to launch a missile on his behalf, that it would have to go through a certain chain of command before it was observed. And I'm just hoping, I guess as many people are, because he, he has the codes. And that used to be the things that people would sort of in frustration say that he's got the nuclear codes. Can we trust this guy? And so I, I, I hear what you're saying. Few are privy to, to the protocols, but your gut feel, and hopefully, and hopefully, you're, I'm, I'm hoping you're right that there are things in place to provide that check and balance. Uh, we're talking lives. We're talking ushering a new third world war. But I, I appreciate your comment on that. You know, um, I think the word that I, when you consider that he has dismantled the uh, many of the checks and balances and safeguards that were in place on the political side it makes me wonder, is there anything to protect us against his instability when it comes to using nuclear force? Uh, that's the thing that concerns me. Because up to this date, everybody who's still there just, just cowers in front of this guy and uh, won't stand up against him. He had a, you know, a few smatterings of people trying to find their voice, but it didn't last long at all. No. Sure. And, and you know, I, I um, the general commentary after General Mattis decided to leave uh, the White House or the administration was there were no more adults in the room and there were no more adults in the room that would give the president the proper guidance and guidance that uh, hopefully that he would accept. But I, that's the issue right there is who, who, who would he accept guidance from? Because right now it doesn't look like anyone's there. Uh, if if we look at another area, we look at COVID nineteen, and I know we're going to talk about that. But uh, Dr. Fauci has served several presidents, both Democrat and Republican presidents, and he has been cast aside. As a matter of fact, there's been a concerted effort to destroy his credibility, but that credibility wasn't in question until he decided that, hey, I feel like this is the truth and this is what I'm gonna say. It just so happens I disagree with the way the president sees things. So yes, I too believe that there is a, a lack of um, adult leadership for lack of a better term in the White House. And I don't know, I don't know who is there right now that confidently can walk in and lay out facts to the president and have them accept it. I think most people will probably be shown the door. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I agree that I don't think that there's someone there right now. 
and you mentioned um, COVID-19. Am I wrong that I thought that he had placed someone in the military over the distribution of protective uh, equipment? He did. He is, he is confirmed a four-star general uh, from, the, from uh, the United States Army, who's a, a logistician by trade, and, and he has put him in charge um, of uh, ensuring the proper distribution of things like uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, and, and that's great, and I understand, but he still, too, will take direction from someone else. And so you can, I think, rest assured by previous actions that that direction will come from the president. You know, and, and if the president isn't getting what he wants, just like this morning or yesterday, the president made a decision that uh, all uh, stats pertaining to COVID-19 will no longer go to the CDC first, they will go to his administration. Now, on the yeah, surface, that doesn't sound like a bad thing, okay? It sounds like, hey, the, sir, the administration is trying to get their hands around the exactness, if you will, of the problem. But another way one might view that is, yes, but that's a way of controlling information also. Right. And so if I'm the one that's receiving the stats and I am receiving them alone, then I will decide what you receive, general public, writ large in America. I will decide how you receive and what you receive. And so there will be the picture that I paint rather than a organization that has been known to maintain its neutrality, if you will, which is the CDC. And we know what he does with information. Uh, right. The, the, the appointment of that general to oversee distribution of PPE equipment was, it, to me, it was just for show because there has been no national coordinated effort to distribute anything. So what is he doing? As a matter of fact, one of his closest advisors, uh, and I think it was his son-in-law, says, hey, no, 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 no. The national stockpile was for the administration's use. It was not for the state's use. Right. So that kind of tells you where they were thinking already. Well, he made a chilling comment back, I believe, in March when everything was new and, and everyone was spiking, especially New York was just getting better. And then other governors were really worried and they were, they were asking and begging for equipment. And he sort of inferred that, well, they didn't speak nice to me or they didn't thank me. So we sort of withheld needed equipment and we parsed it out to other more appreciative governors who happen to be Republican. Um, so that, that type of just utterance, uh, it, it just shows a lot of what's going on in his psyche. Uh, he so much wants to be like one of the top dictators like Putin, uh, Kim Jong-un, and others that, uh, that he sort of lifts up and in some weird, bizarre way um, that it comes out in his actions. And from your military position, and we're going to probably get into this topic of the bounties that have been talked about. This love for Putin, this uh, admiration for Putin, um, defending him, even when the facts are on the table, isn't that treasonous? That's a leap. <laughs> even, even, if it's, even if it's not treasonous, it's probably not in the best interest of the United States. 
So I, rather than trying to draw, for, for me personally, drawing, drawing that bright, bright line between treasons and non-treasons, I would say his actions are probably not in the interest of the United States. And, and it's not just those individuals in the United States that recognize this. Other world leaders have condemned his approach to Putin. Other world leaders have said, hey, you taking Putin's sides over your own intelligence is not in the best interest of your country. And we know that if nothing else, a country should act in its own best interest whenever possible. And he, as a leader of the United States, has not always acted in his best interest, in our best interest, because he has kind of, it seems, fallen in love with this idea of, I want to be a strong man. Uh, I want to be like Putin. I want to be elected for life, so to speak. Well, we're, we're already in this new territory because, let's not forget, he is impeached. Yes. So yes. we have an impeached president who is leading our country. This is new territory. Nixon left before getting impeached. Sure. This guy is impeached. And um, as we get closer to the election, he's getting more desperate. And so now, and, and I do want to talk a little bit more about this Russian bounty thing, but forcing the children to go back to school when the COVID-19 situation, it is not under control yet. To me, that, that brings question into his, his ability to lead our country. But before we, before we jump in that, I think we need to do our last uh, sort of ID for our listening audiences. Uh, if you've just tuned in to bring it on, uh, we're having a fascinating conversation with Major General Craig Q. Lake Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. He's retired at the moment, but he had a very successful and distinguished military career. We've invited him to come on today, provide his uh, observations, uh, his opinions, frank, candid, honest, open opinions of the leadership of the gentleman that, for all intents and purposes, is our commander in chief of the U.S. Special uh, U.S. Armed Forces. And um, we sort of danced around this one point, and and I just want to put it on the table. I think it's time we ask a question about. Okay, you have evidence of the Russians putting bounty on U.S. servicemen and women in Afghanistan. What are your frank, open, and honest, candid responses, your, your, your impressions of the president's response to this information being presented to him? Okay, first off, so the president has steadfastly denied that he was ever presented that information. So let's go down that trail first. Let's say he, he feels that he was never presented information. And his administration has put out several statements saying that the president was not briefed because the information was not 100% verified. Well, in the intelligence community, most all the operatives will tell you that if you wait for any intelligence to be 100% verified, it's no longer intelligence, it's history. Whatever event you thought you were monitoring has already happened and it's time to move on. You can't wait for it. Right? And, and very seldom do we wait for 100% verification before we present intelligence. Now, I have sat in on numerous briefs, and I have presented numerous briefs, not at the presidential level, but at a couple levels below the president. And I will tell you, we don't wait for 100% verification. What I think might have happened here, and, and, and please hear me out on this one, what I think may have happened here is, um, if, if you look at the president's history, 
then individuals that have worked for him will tell you that he is very hard to brief. And the reason he is very hard to brief is because he oftentimes, oftentimes comes in with a preconceived notion of what you're going to brief him on. And everyone that's ever briefed knows that the hardest thing in the world to do during a brief is to brief someone who already feels that they know more than the, about the subject than you, the briefer does. And that seems to be the case. There was a book written in 2017 that talked about how this president receives briefs vis-a-vis -vis how other presidents in the past have received briefs. And this one has what's considered a short attention span. And some of the things that the briefers would have to do in order to keep his attention during a brief, no matter what it was on, especially intelligence, they would have to insert his name in the brief because he would listen then because his name was there. Also, as you know, the president receives not only briefs, but he gets, an, and it's a daily brief, and he gets a presidential daily briefing book, a PDB. And that is a book that can contain some of the areas that maybe we didn't have time to fully explore during the brief, because we're already briefing someone with a short attention span. We place it in that book, and he's expected to read that book. But the president has personally said, he doesn't read a lot. Well, he said he does read a lot and he doesn't read a lot. You'll have to decide which one, which story you believe that day. So I, I think it is very possible that the president was briefed and didn't hear it. It is possible that the information was given to the president in, a, in his PDB and he didn't read it. Very possible. You know, I, I have been wrong about this president on more than a couple of occasions. And I mean, I've been way off. Uh, another uh, instance that, that I was, that I miscalculated was this bounty on U.S. service uh, men and women. Because um, I honestly thought that it would be the downfall, finally be the downfall of his presidency. Because the ultimate measure of patriotism in this country seems to be your support for the military. And so here you have a commander in chief who does not seem to support his military uh, in light of this information. And so in my mind, that calls into question his, his patriotism, uh, his loyalty uh, towards this country. So what do you think his response should have been? Sure. Okay, so if, if he was briefed, then in you know in our military universities we teach four elements of power for the united states and the government and and therefore the president of the united states and we use an acronym called dime and we talk about the dime and those four elements of power are diplomatic informational military and then economic so d-i-m-e when confronted with an issue like a bounty being placed on Americans by the Russians, the first thing in my mind is he should have used those three elements of power, the D, the I, and the E, and then finally saved the military for the last one. And so it should have been started. His course of action in my mind should have been diplomacy first. Tell Putin I know about it and you need to stop it and you need to stop it yesterday. And if that doesn't work, then he starts an informational campaign. And that information campaign allows him to coalesce around him, the leaders of other countries and let them understand what's going on. 
so that when he moves to the next, the E, the economics, and he applies sanctions against Russia, they work because everybody understands what's going on. Everyone understands what's at play. And he has a, a majority of the countries because that's the only way sanctions work. If everybody, if everybody respects a sanction, a sanction will work. If everybody doesn't, then it won't work. And then in the end, he could use military after all. And I'm not saying necessarily against Russia, the Russian leader, but against Russian forces. He used the military to kill Suleiman. So we could use the military after all other efforts have failed. But a course of action is easily laid out simply by looking at uh, the four um, power positions, the dime, and that would have given him a clue on which way he should have gone. And, and oh, by the way, when all else fails, ask your military members for some advice and they would probably tell them what to do. You know, I, I wonder how many times he's actually asked anyone from advice uh, because I think he said, uh, I am a, um, he, he defined himself as this highly intellectual person or something. A genius. Thought himself highly, highly stable genius. Highly stable, yeah, a highly stable genius. So he has no need to ask for advice. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously his relationship with the military, we can assume is going to have an adverse effect on the civilian population in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, our country has never, at least to our knowledge, and maybe we'll never know, we've never had any type of hint or uh, any type of subtle military coup being planned or being thought of. Um, and, and that's one of the blessings of living in America. We, we feel pretty confident that there's a check and balance and that there is respect for, um, number one, the peaceful transference of power after an election, which is another point we'll get to in a little bit, but amongst the military ranks in some countries where we don't have stability, the military rushes in and takes over. Now, and again, I don't feel we're anywhere near that. I would be horrified, mortified, and and just, I, I just refuse to believe that that would happen, but he is pushing an envelope, I feel. And I think, as William said, the last straw would be that if you knew that that our treasure is being targeted by a foreign enemy. And I don't think we're okay, or a foreign threat. And you don't do anything to correct it other than to say, oh, well, you know, I don't believe it. Or he has not really made a statement about it yet. So to me, military generals and planners and rank and file, they have to start thinking something like, you know, morale has to be sort of threatened here. What are your thoughts on that? Well, well I think um, there are several things that president has done that, that could threaten the morale of, of the overall fighting force. Um, we, and, and we've talked about them here, uh, sending, send, just from the very beginning, sending troops to the border, um, uh, sending uh, police officers and military members to break up peaceful demonstrations to make, to tweet and make comments like when the looting starts, the shooting starts. He's done a, a plethora of things that could affect the morale of the military at some point. But I think getting to your overall question, I think your overall question is, would it ever be at a breaking point? Well, I, I think the breaking point, the actions of the military at that breaking point would be governed 
again by the oath of office. The military is pretty much set. You know, it's, it's a hierarchy and you have senior enlisted and officer leadership at the top there. And again, the officers take an oath to the constitution. So I think that in the event of a crisis, the officers will look toward two things. First off, the, um, const their oath, firmly they will look toward their oath, sworn allegiance to the constitution, not to the president. And they also will look to those other arms of power in the United States and that being the Supreme Court as well as the Congress. And they say, hey, there's a balance here for a reason. And what do they have to say on an issue? And then they will let that guide their actions. I don't think like you that we're anywhere close to the military or anyone saying that, hey, we've got to forcibly remove him at this point. And in order to do that, we have to do A, B, C, and D. I don't think we're there right now. Well, earlier this year, we interviewed a constitutional law professor from Indiana University. And at some point during the interview, he said that in the event of a constitutional crisis and Donald Trump refuses to leave the office, it would really come down to whether the military would back the president. Meaning, and some are already talking about this scenario playing out that, okay, he objects to mail-in ballots. Uh, and we do know that we will probably not know who the winner is that night, the way things are going. It, it may take days, just looking at the primaries in some states. Uh, could it boil down to him saying, well, you know, I just don't trust the result. Well, therefore, I'm not leaving. Now, we have the Supreme Court determine the Al Gore uh, presidential run for office. Uh, what if what if he just stands his ground and refuses to leave? Uh, and, and, and I know that there are protocols in place, I would hope. I would hope that some high-ranking Republican senators and, and congressmen would pay a visit to the White House, you know, say hi to Melania and say, where is he? And she's always oh, in the office. And then he would, they would go in and have a ca casual conversation, say, hey, it's time to go. <laughs> but what do you think might happen? Well, let, let me ask, let me add on to that. At this point, do you trust any Republican senators to do what Howard Baker and uh, Barry Goldwater did back during the Nixon era? To go in and uh, advise the president, hey, you, you, you have to go. Well, I, I think they would, but, but the bigger question is, does he trust them enough to listen? Because even if I do think that there would be some that would go in, would he take their advice? And I think that's, where the, that's, that's the true question is, would he take their advice? Because I know that, no, I don't know, but I suspect there, that, that some would say, hey, look, it is time to put the country ahead of my party and partisan politics. And I've got to go in and do the right thing. I believe that some would be willing to do that. I just believe, I, I, I have to believe that. Um, but would he listen? Because to this point, he has shown that perhaps he would not listen. So I, I, don't, I don't know that he would listen. But, but getting back um, to Clarence's question, um, again, I say, look at, in the, in the Gore situation, Al Gore, we kind of defer to the Supreme Court and the court and what they said was correct. And that's what military members, I think, will do. They will look, in, again, for direction from the Supreme Court and what it says is correct and who is the rightful owner of that office and who should be taking that office. They will look at the Congress and maybe someone going over, as you suggested, uh, William, 
to talk to the president and, and try to explain to him how things should be working. And then I think they would go back to their oath of office. And then again, when we talk that oath of office, remember against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and bear true faith and allegiance to the same, defending the constitution. And so I believe that the military would defend the constitution and that's where they would take their cue from the constitution, their oath, and the other two arms of the government, which be in the Supreme Court and the Congress. And you know, at this point, just based on what you said, I cannot have a sufficient amount of confidence, even in the Supreme Court, based on some of their some of the decisions that they've made. Uh, go going back to the uh, conservative majority on the court. Sure, but but you know, even even. Uh, the way I see it, even the conservative majority of the court, even the president himself is, has been a little bit upset with uh, the chief justice on a couple of rulings. Yes, a couple of rulings have gone as the president expected and, and sort of leaning to the right, but the chief justice has also sided with the left on mm -hmm. a couple of recent rulings and, true, true. and has disappointed true. the president to say the least. But, but then he tweets uh, this impulsive impulsiveness, he'll get on that Twitter account and, and he'll say, he'll critique the Supreme Court and dismiss what they've just ruled on. And I'm thinking, wait, 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 you know, breaking all um, the quorum as a president. Uh, we have a few minutes left. The hour has uh, sped by. I want to, I want to ask something just, which is sort of off of our line of questioning because uh, in your introduction, in our introduction of you, we talked about how you went through the ranks of the military. We talked about some of the um, promotions and distinguished posts you've held. And I just want to pose this final question for you to comment on. What are some of the short and long-term benefits of high school grads pursuing a career in the military? And more specifically, with our current volunteer service, do you see a need for perhaps reactivating the selective service? Uh, but first, to the benefits part of um, our, our youth uh, joining, joining the service. Your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, you know, again, having talked to countless service members and, and from all services, not, not just the Marine Corps, but all services, um, I will tell you, I think some of the biggest short-term benefits um, that, I, that I have uncovered have come from the parents, actually. When I have talked to the parents of those individuals that have completed initial training with the Marine Corps, we call it boot camp, uh, recruit training, uh, other services call it whatever, but it's their initial training. The one thing the parents, a couple of things the parents always say that on meeting their child after however long that, that was, they met their children again and the children were very much more respectful and they had a heightened sense of, of confidence and if you look four years later when they're at the end of the first enlistment and you talk to a headhunter a professional headhunter someone's trying to recruit for jobs they will tell you hey you know i can always tell when someone's prior military because they come in and they look at you they grab your hand they shake your hand firmly they look you in the eye and they're very confident in everything they're doing so for today's uh, for our youth today i think if you don't know exactly what you want to be four years in the military will at least tell you what you don't want to be. So I think they pick up confidence. 
and, and I and I think of, they pick up respect for some of those institutions that we hold dear as Americans. I think that's the best short-term benefit, along with the fact they're serving their country and they might have an opportunity to figure out what they don't want to do, even if they don't figure out what they want to do. The long-term benefits to me are, uh, again, service to the nation. If you came in at, eight, at 18 years old, 20 years later, you could conceivably retire from, from the profession at 38 to 40 years of age. The GI Bill that we have today is the best GI Bill in the history of the United States. I mean, it will pay for a, a public school state education and a stipend to go to school, uh, oh. a stipend for why you're going to school. So to me, those are the long-term benefits. You know, I would love to add to that, but that would be another show altogether, and we have to wrap it up. <laughs> well, well, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll invite uh, General Timberlake back to go further into that, because, you know, we talked about some of the frustrations in this interview and the things that make us pound our head against the wall, but there are, of course, uh, there's distinction in serving your country, and we want to talk about that aspect perhaps at a later date. Uh, we want to thank General Craig Q. Lake Timberlake, uh, I guess his nickname is Lake, but uh, Craig Q. Timberlake from the United States Marine Corps for joining us to provide some open, frank, and honest reactions concerning our current Commander-in-Chief of the United States Armed Forces. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas uh, or events or happenings you want to share, please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. And we want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On is the people's forum for Black culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? We've talked about tweeting a lot today. Uh, you're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit WFHB's news website at wfhb.org slash news. This show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. I also like to say that William Jose is our graphic designer of all things pertaining to flyers and as uh, as an artistic streak in him. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. <laughs>